0: Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Welcome to Building Banking on Values with your host, Linda Ryan. Banking today can depend on a variety of factors, including where you bank. It's time to put the power back into your pockets. It's time to change what you think you know about banking. Now, here is Linda Ryan.
2: Welcome back to the Building Banking on Values show, a series that goes behind the scenes to shine a light on the values-based banking movement. We've got real stories about real people and initiatives, products and programs, and even innovations creating very positive change in the banking sector. In case you're new to this series, this show is all about how a new wave of banks are reassessing their purpose and redesigning their mission and operations around real people, real communities, and the real economy. In essence, what it means is it's a a new type of ethical or sustainable or just or regenerative type of banking, and it's growing. So far, we've explored banking with a social conscience, the concept of feminine banking, lobbying and teaching for change in the sector, how research and governance is changing the banking sector, and how investment banking can and should have a heart. We've looked at concepts like financial inclusion and economic independence, impact and how banks can and should go beyond the balance sheet and last week we explored how grassroots change in banking is happening at an educational community development and even occupy level On this show, we'll hear from Damien Walsh, who's the Managing Director with Bank Australia. Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned Australian bank. And we'll also hear from Charles Hampton-Turner, an author and management philosopher. Both Damien and Charles are believers in how money can be put to good use. But first, let's go to David Korsland, a senior advisor consulting in the values-based banking sector for over 30 years. David's going to take us through the latest news and views on banking and finance. David, welcome to the show. Hey,
3: Linda. How are you?
2: I'm great, thanks. How are you?
3: I'm doing fine. Sorry, I wasn't able to join last week.
2: No problem. Actually, I'd love to, to find out about what you were doing last week.
3: Well, last week, Linda, I had the opportunity to join the Global Islamic Finance Forum, sponsored by the Central Bank of Malaysia. That's uh, the Nagara Bank. Nagara in Malay is uh, Central Bank. And they have every other year a meeting where they deal with various issues related to Islamic finance or Sharia-compliant finance. I think it's a better way to phrase it, and they invited uh, me to address them about the research we've done at the Global Alliance on the financial and non-financial results, uh, comparing comparison between the largest banks in the world and uh, sustainable banks. <clears throat> Excuse me, And they also asked me to talk about the scorecards because they're very much focused on how can uh, Sharia-compliant banks both trendsetters and leaders not just being compliant with with the rules of Sharia, but also with the spirit of Sharia, which is how do you use the financial system to serve human needs. Fascinating meeting, a lot of attendance, and lots of interest in how the scorecard developed by the Global uh, Alliance for Banking and Values uh, ha- helping uh, Sharia-compliant banks also meet the, the needs of society. So, really interesting. A long trip for a uh, short uh, presentation, but well worth it.
2: And what is Sharia finance?
3: Sharia finance is uh finance that is compliant with the, law, uh, the rules of Sharia. Uh, the, the most uh, known element of that is that it does not pay interest. And so uh, neither depositors nor uh, borrowers pay interest on their loans or their deposits or receive interest on their deposits, Um, and that's sort of the core of it. It gets back to some uh, issues that are also in other uh, religious-based texts about how interest is not a healthy thing. Uh, I think that's that's not necessarily um, something I fully agree with, but what I do agree with is Shabia, uh, compli- uh Compliance Finance is also very focused on the real economy. It's not about creating financial, uh, complicated financial products. It's about meeting the needs of individuals and enterprises in the real economy. So that's, I think, at the core of it. Uh, there's much more to it. Uh, I was... Uh, given a, a, a long book about uh, Korea finance, I have not had the time to read the full book, but it's an interesting alternative approach to the financial system, well worth considering.
2: Absolutely. And you, you mentioned you were there and you were talking about the research done with the GABV and the scorecard. Can you tell us a bit about, um, you know, what you were sharing about the scorecard and how that could help Islamic finance?
3: Uh, with the scorecard, what I was presenting is how, as a tool, It could help both the central bank uh, of Malaysia, but also the banks who they regulate, look at their business models, assess what they're currently doing, see how it is uh, serving the needs of society, uh, delivering uh, economic resiliency, social empowerment, and environmental regeneration, and in that way, uh, really giving back to society, something that I think banks should be doing more of as opposed to merely taking from society and and creating uh, profits, be either paid out as bonuses or to uh, be paid as dividends to shareholders. But to to really uh, consider those as important stakeholders, co-workers are important, uh, investors are important, but also being sure that the stakeholders of uh, civil society are also getting a return.
2: Great, so it sounds like the scorecard is a tool um, that's going to help banks, I guess, measure and master the type of social, economic, and environmental impact that they can either create or sus- uh, support and sustain.
3: Yeah, the only, the only word I would change is uh, from uh, can create to should create. I think it's what banks should be doing, uh, yeah. and this should help, the, tool, the scorecard should help them find ways to do it better.
2: Wonderful. Okay. So, David, what else is happening in the news or what's happened in the last week or two since you've been away?
3: Well, one thing I'd like to go back to, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, the living wage. And since then, another example has come in of a bank that's taken an interesting approach to the living wage. Uh, I think when I talked about a couple of weeks ago, it was a couple of banks in the U.S. that have committed to paying all their employees at least $15 an hour, which is considered a living wage. Beneficial State Bank, uh, based in Oakland, actually takes it a step further. And what they do is they make a study of where they operate, and they ensure that their lowest paid employee has at least one and a half times what the living wage for that location is. And that means, for example, in Oakland, they don't pay $15 an hour, but they pay $20 an hour because it's one-and-a-half times what the required living wage is. And I think that's, that shows banks that are really going above and beyond just a, a simple solution, but saying, what does it really mean for our employees' location? And I think that's, that's a good example for their clients as well.
2: Indeed. And we actually had Tamara Vrooman on last week from Van City. And she was saying, you know, in, in terms of the obligation and commitment to pay a living wage, they'd even take it a step further. So they go beyond paying the living wage to staff, but they start to work with suppliers. Um, and vendors that they would have contracts with to ensure that any staff working on behalf of the organization are also getting paid a living wage. Uh, so it's an interesting level of, of commitment and how banks on a very practical level can can create change in their local communities.
3: Absolutely. Banks uh, should be leading on this, and it's great to see some banks that are doing so.
2: Wonderful. And what else is happening in the news?
3: Well, I have to say I found it really Fun article on on uh, the 16th of May. That was I think Monday this week, in which uh, there was a bit of a fight in the U.S. between J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon and the head of the U.S. Uh, community banks, where he basically called the head of the U.S. community banks a jerk, um, and it, because the head of the Independent Community Bank of America noted that not all banks have the same agenda. But the 6,000 community banks in the U.S. with $4 trillion of assets don't necessarily have the same objectives as J.P. Morgan shapes. But uh, it was quite interesting to have uh, one banker call another a jerk um, uh, on, on CNBC. That's where he actually said it. But I think it shows that one should not judge all the banks' things. Uh, there are a variety of banking models out there. That's a good thing. It's good to have diversity in banking. Uh, and it's good to see that uh, not all bankers agree with each other. So I, I guess I encourage all the listeners to think carefully about who and what banks are doing business with. It's always nice to know that your, your money is sleeping at night. The bank is also focused on doing good for society.
2: And it does sound like there's there's actually a lot of of uh, well I guess lots of competition and lots of variety out there from a community bank perspective and and one would argue that community banks are probably better placed to to serve the needs of of the real economy in that local community because they're probably more connected and have a different type of relationship with customers.
3: I think that's correct, Linda, and that's actually one of the historic strengths for the U.S. banking system, but I think also leading then to the strength of the U.S. economic system and its development of small enterprise and jobs. Um, I think that is something, however, that is under threat. If if you look at the statistics in the U.S. for the concentration of the financial system, the, the crisis, which started because there were banks too big to fail, has actually ended with more concentration, more banks, too big to fail, covering more of the assets. It's not clear to me that the crisis led to the right solution. In fact, it may have actually made things worse because there's, there's much more concentration in a few large banks in the U.S. than there was before the crisis began. So Correct. it's good to see that the independent bankers of America... Are, are standing up and saying, we're important to and think about us. And if it upsets some of the uh, CEOs of very, very large banks, that's probably a good thing.
2: Absolutely. And it's interesting you're, you're talking about the concentration because I've, just in the last week, I've seen two conflicting um, news articles or reports on this. You know, one from Bloomberg where it's saying the millennials are voting with their feet and young Americans are dumping big banks and moving their money to smaller banks and credit unions because they crave high touch. And then I saw another report saying, well, it looks like big banks are growing. But, uh, you know, I wonder if behind the details, the big banks are growing from a monetary perspective, which, which may be about doing business in different ways to the smaller banks. You know, it could be through, I don't know, it could be through speculation, it could be through certain types of instruments or products and services that they're growing their revenue, but they may not actually be growing their customer base.
3: Yeah, I think, Linda, the thing to always look, uh, look at is real data. And in the U.S., if you look at the data in terms of where uh, deposits are concentrated or loans are concentrated, it's, it's really been a significant increase in concentration starting before the financial crisis in 2008 but continuing since then. And I, I personally worry that that will destroy the entrepreneurial uh, banks community banks that have really been key, I think, to the development of a, a strong U.S. economy. So I, I'd say, I think it's nice that Bloomberg put that article in, but I suspect when we look at the uh, data, we will continue to see ongoing concentration with fewer banks in the U.S., and I question whether that's healthy for the long term.
2: Absolutely. You know, we've talked often about the too-big-to-fail banks, and at the end of the day, I think nothing is too-big-to-fail <laughs>
3: Yeah, I, th- I always like to say that uh, the issue is not just that they're too big to fail. Uh, some would say, given some of the misdeeds of some large banks, they're also too big to jail, so everyone's afraid to go after them when they, when they obviously are violating laws. And I think one could also argue they're also too big to fail. They're frankly just too big to manage. They're too complex. So uh, too big to, to fail, too big to jail, too big to fail. I think it's time for some uh, careful thinking about public policy.
2: Absolutely. And actually, now that you speak about policy, I saw as well, RTE.ie, which is an Irish uh, TV and radio station, was talking about the UK watchdog, which has just this week unveiled measures to improve banking competition in the UK, which includes things like capping overdraft fees and forcing or, I guess, encouraging banks to join price comparison websites. So it's interesting that even watchdogs at a policy level are starting to make and insist on changes for, for banking in general.
3: And I think the critical issue there, Linda, is transparency, making it easy for for clients, whether it's individuals or enterprise, to look at the charges that banks are are, are setting and say, "Where do I want to put my money? Where do I get the right uh, the right uh, price uh, for what i 'm offering so I think it's great, particularly the focus on transparency.
2: Absolutely, and and quickly, we've we've two minutes left, David. Was there anything else that piqued your interest in terms of? Uh, yeah,
3: uh, we'll go to a whole different continent. There was a very very interesting article about fintech in Africa as lenders tap mobile technology. That was also Tuesday of this week, and it talked about a partnership between Finca, which is a, a U.S. based microfinance organization. Uh, it's U.S. based, but its activities are. Uh, in developing countries around the world and first access a database, uh, a data analytics company, and they're looking at how they use telephone technology to, to enhance the microfinance lending process. And I think this is another example where unusual partnerships between financial institutions and non-financial institutions are able to find solutions to deliver needed financial services. Around the world, and what I think makes it even more interesting is what, what you see is that quite a bit of this innovation is happening in developing countries. so, so the, the developed world north America, Europe is frankly, quite often far behind in terms of the use of new technology to really meet uh, the client needs. So I, I think this a combination of a dedicated analytics company. The microfinance entities and and the the telecoms uh, entities in Africa to develop a new way of meeting the needs of individuals is fascinating. Something well worth watching, maybe something that uh, the developed world could learn from.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that really the real innovation comes from watching what other people are doing in other countries, and there can be so much we can all learn from from a banking and a system perspective, looking at at different countries. David, thanks very much for joining us. as As always, it was a pleasure, folks. If you want to follow what David is is saying on Twitter, you can catch him at Zid Dave. That's Z U I D D A V E. And join us after the break, folks, because we have Charles Hampton Turner, management philosopher, researcher, and advocate for values based corporate cultures joining us on the line.
4: Search Voice America at your favorite app store.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to linda.ryan@ at G-A-B-V dot org. That's Linda at G-A-B-V You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag banking on or tweet show host Linda Ryan at Catalyst Warrior. Now back to building banking on values.
2: Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. We just had a very interesting interview with David Kurzland who joins us weekly to chat about the news and headlines. We were talking about things like Islamic finance, the living wage, transparency, fintech, and how great examples of innovation through banking technology are happening in what we typically call developing countries. On the show joining us now we have Charles Hampton-Turner, who's a British management philosopher and a senior research associate at the Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. He is the creator of the Dilemma Theory and co-founder and director of research and development at Trompeners-Hampton-Turner based in the Netherlands. Charles received his master's and doctorate degrees from Harvard Business School. He's the recipient of a number of awards. He's won Guggenheim, Rockefeller and Ford Foundation fellowships. He's worked as a consultant for Shell, BP, the Economic Council of Canada and even the BBC. And Charles has conducted research throughout Europe and North America and he's the author of nine books. Charles, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Charles, can you tell us about your book Nine Visions of Capitalism? Yeah, well um, <laughs> one good
5: thing about uh, being I, I went, uh, to hobbit in uh and I graduated, in, and I got a doctorate in the, in the 60s, It's before it became fashionable to go to the Harvard Business School. <laughs> uh, they still, uh, the girls wouldn't date us in those days. But uh, I, when I graduated, I, I, I realized uh, I was never going to be poor. So uh, I decided to do exactly what I wanted for the rest of my life. And I've been very, very fortunate. I've actually not uh, written uh, nine books. I've, I've written 22 and uh, I followed uh, my own logic, and I, and I searched the world for really exciting uh, projects that I think will improve the human condition, and, and the Global, global Alliance for Banking on Values is, is, was one such, and I, I wrote it up in my latest book, uh, The Nine Visions of Capitalism.
2: And what inspired you in particular to write a book called Nine Visions of Capitalism? You know, what are the are the things or the trends that you're seeing in capitalism that warrants a book dedicated to it? Well, um in my view um um
5: Capitalism is in crisis in the West. It's in very serious crisis, and um, there's a book out called Conscious Capitalism, which I recommend, uh, written by the man who owns Whole Foods, uh, which is a twelve billion dollar company, John John Mackey, and he um, he he, he characterises. Uh, shareholder increasing shareholder value to to cancer in the human body if you have a system and the system has many different elements and if you increase the size and the wealth of just one element uh, in this whole system, then eventually the system is going to collapse uh, so um maximizing uh, shareholder income is basically cancerous and and basically suboptimal and uh, what we need is wealth creation wealth creation is not the same as making money uh, wealth creation is making sure that all your uh, shareholders are better off david was talking about uh, the living wage uh, if, if i pay 15% uh, above the living the living wage, or say 15% higher than the average in my industry, then what will happen is that I will attract better people. And if I then spend more money on training the better people, the, the, their productivity will be 25% higher, let us say, and that 25% higher will pay for the training and pay for the, those those better wages. And now you see everybody is better off. The the, the company is better off. The employee. Are better off. The suppliers are better off. If I if I pay them in thirty days and not ninety days, the suppliers will be better off, and the customers will be better off. And, and that's what I mean by, by wealth creation. Everybody, all stakeholders, have to be better off. And, and what I like for the what I like about the, the global alliance for banking on values is that they seem to understand that they 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 are dedicated, that uh, they see banking uh, mm-hmm. not as an industry in its own right. So they see banking as a service uh, to other industries, and the bank will be successful in so far as it serves other industries, and I, and I think that's correct. Uh, Uh, The two coins uh, rubbing up against each other have never created a third coin, and they never will. Money by itself is sterile. If you want to create wealth, you have to lend the money to somebody who's going to build or create a, a product or a service. That product or service has to be sold. You have to get even more money than it cost, uh, cost to make that service and cost to make that product. Even more money comes back. And if more money comes back than it costs, then you have created wealth uh, and you share it with everybody. So banks are absolutely essential uh, to creating wealth as far as I'm concerned. But they do not, on their own and by themselves, uh, create any wealth at all. They have, you know, money is inherently scarce, uh, and you have to transform that money into something else, and then you have to transform that something else back into money, and that's how you create wealth, and I think uh, the Global Alliance understands
2: that, and that's why I appreciate it and I admire it. That's wonderful. So, you know, true true wealth creation is is about a true exchange of of value and where the banks play a role in this is that they really should be putting themselves back in service of the people, the businesses and the communities that they're set up to serve. Um you talk in your book about a marriage of east meets west in successful corporate cultures. Can you describe what that is? Well, um, so one advantage of, of,
5: of, the, of, of the GABB is it's relatively small. Uh, the banks are relatively small, and, and that is an advantage uh, because if people know each other by their first name, if they're if they're intimate, if they're friendly, if they're close, uh, uh, then on the whole they're much more creative. Mor- morale is much higher. Turnover is much lower. Uh, and everything works better the, the problem all industry faces is when your business unit is more than about 120 130 people uh, then you have to start bureaucratizing you have to start having rules and procedures and, uh, and life uh, tends to get boring so the the, 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 um, the challenge for the global alliance is, is as the units grow larger uh, will it will it retain its humanity? Will it retain its principles? Will it uh, retain its integrity? And uh, and I I, I hope and I suspect it will, but it will be a mighty big challenge. The small units are... I mean, if you look at Gallup polls in America, uh, 65% of Americans like small business and about 21% of Americans like big business. (laughs) And and big business has major problems of... uh, of having a copying fluid in its blood instead of in its veins instead of blood, and uh, and, and basically uh, big corporations, uh, uh, they tend to uh, get a hardening of the arteries, and, and and they get informal and they get objective, and, and the humanity deserts them. So th- this is a major crisis we we have to face. Um, a uh, 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 culture works by being voluntary, it, you, you know we try and we, we try and clean up the banks by regulating. But if people just do something because they're complying, you know, if you you hire so many women because you're complying with uh, with, with ratios, but uh, unless you appreciate women, unless you like women, unless you want them in your organisation, unless you want to listen to them, unless you think they're valuable uh, as human beings, you won't get any benefit from them. Simply because you've got a woman in the shop window or a black person or a minority in the shop window won't do you any good at all. And banks have to want to help people. They have to want to help companies and to have a social impact and increase it. Unless they do that voluntarily, unless they want mm-hmm. to do it, they'll never be affected. You, 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 you can't make banks obedient. You can't, you can't get them to, to do good by, by creating uh, regulations. We have too many regulations. The American tax code has 70,000 pages. And if you add that to the federal register in America, uh, you are looking at, uh, at tens of hundreds of thousands of page, pages. Probably the USA is the most regulated economy on earth. Yeah. <laughs> so regulation doesn't work. And what works is spontaneous desire to intend to help people to help your clients and you see banks always love lending money um, uh, for housing and things like that and that's because you know if somebody defaults you can sell that house and you sometimes you get you get more, you often get more than you than, lent than, than the person in the first place so it's very high collateral and it's relatively low risk it wasn't such a low risk in 2008 but generally speaking over the years, it's low risk. Unfortunately, it's also very low productivity. When you when you buy the house, you live in it, you don't work in it, you don't turn it into an engine of growth. So banks like lending to people uh, for their mortgages because mortgages are safe, they're low risk, and they're very high collateral. Unfortunately, they're also... Very low productivity on on average, and we desperately need banks willing to lend to startups, willing to lend to new ideas, willing to lend uh, for the reason of of, of social impact. And let me give you an example um, of, of um, the social impact because it's it's important. To, you know, there's an aberrant eye hospital in India that uh, that has managed to get uh, operations on laser operations on your eyes down to about uh, you know, fifteen dollars in sort of mass production uh, eye surgeons, and, and you can remove the cataracts of somebody going blind for for fifteen dollars. Now that that not only Releases uh, two hundred, three hundred thousand people from blindness. It, it also frees whoever's taking care of them, who's ever had to lead them around. So you, you release two people. So the social impact of those operations is enormously higher than than the fifteen dollars they, uh, they 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 actually give the operation free. But middle class people uh, pay uh, fifty dollars for for an operation and and and. Uh, Tourists who fly in and pay $100 for an operation. Even that is very cheap by world standards. But the social impact is enormously greater than the cost. And... Uh, Again, citing India, um, uh, salt loses its iodine content when when it's roughly handled. And and India uh, has sea salt, salt They have no salt mines, so the the salt is all made from seawater. And as it's transported, it loses its iodine content. Iodine content. And when that happens, children are born mentally defective because there's not enough iodine in their bodies. Now, the Hindustani has has discovered a product if you if you spray it on salt, the salt retains its iodine content. So just doing that, and the operation is is very very cheap. You, you can save about a quarter of a million of people from being uh, born mentally defective. So the social impact can be absolutely huge. So what I like about the global the the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, it says, it says to itself, where can I make a really profound social impact? And when you ask that question, there's lots and lots and lots of places where a big social impact can be made. There is a, there is a substance which you can put on wood, and the wood lasts three times longer than it did before. That stops millions of trees being cut down. That... that that is sold as a product and makes money as a product, but it also has a Social ratification that runs all the way through the ecosystem and is immensely valuable. So, Charles, we've just
2: just a minute left to go. So, I mean, thanks very much. What you've been talking about has really resonated. You've talked about the crisis in capitalism and how it's almost a corporate cancer, the importance of wealth creation, the humanity of business and corporate culture and, and the requirement for it, and how banks should really be the engine of growth and genuine wealth creation. Can you? Uh, we don't have time to go into the examples of banks, but can you maybe call out two or three banks and the countries um, that they operate in that are really doing this values-based banking and they're doing it successfully, very quickly?
5: Well, I'm not, I'm not sure there are any in there. <laughs> One advantage East Asia has generally is is that most of the shareholders are foreigners. I mean, they're, they're Americans, uh, uh, Europeans, etc. Uh, and therefore, these countries don't care tremendously about shareholders because they're not one of them. Uh, and of course, there are Singaporeans, there are Chinese who do own shares, but it's not uh, it's, it's not not a big thing as it is. Uh, as it is in the West. So, but who they care most about uh, are the employees. And the suppliers, because the suppliers are indigenous, they're local, and the customers, because the customers are, are local. So when a company comes into Singapore, they say, "We will let you into our country. We're very short of space. You are privileged to be allowed in there. The condition of you coming is that you is that you hire our people, that you do your R and D in this country, that you look after your employees well, that you pay them well, that you pay your suppliers promptly." treat them well uh, and that uh, we have no scandals with with customers that you you supply them reliably and well so uh in China and, and Taiwan, and in uh, Singapore and in Hong Kong, Western country companies invited in are kept to, are told uh, that they they must benefit uh, stakeholders, that is, uh, the, the indigenous stakeholders. And yes, they can send money back uh, to shareholders in America and Europe, but they must treat stakeholders well. So
2: a huge
5: swathes of the world have imitated the Japanese model. The Japanese Charles, model.
2: let me pause you there. Sorry to interrupt, but we actually have to go to break. But thank you very much for that. I mean, you've given some great examples and you're talking about regions like China and Taiwan and Singapore where, um, you know, the successful businesses and the successful economies are built on, on the, an approach where um, any business that's done must benefit stakeholders. So So Thank you very, very much. Folks, I really recommend you check out Charles's book, Nine Visions of Capitalism. He's even dedicated a chapter to talking about the concept of values-based banking and, you know, how it was born and how it's growing. So it's, it's a wonderful example and very practical example of what's happening in terms of change in the world. Folks, let's take you to a break.
3: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
4: Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: You are tuned into Building Banking on Values. To reach Linda Ryan or her guests, please send an email to linda.ryan@ at GABV.org. That's Linda.Ryan at GABV.org. You may also join the social media conversation by using hashtag BankingOnValues or tweet show host Linda Ryan at CatalystWarrior. Now, back to Building Banking on Values.
2: Welcome back to the Building Banking on Value show. On today's show, we were speaking with David Cordland, a senior strategic advisor who's been providing advice to banks and values-based banks in the sector for the last 30 years. We spoke about a number of items in the news and the latest happenings, including Islamic finance, the living wage, transparency, Fintech and innovation happening in uh, banking in the development world, developing world, and how we should be following the trends happening across different continents to see how banking can be improved. We also had uh, Charles Hampton Turner on the line with us. Now, Charles is a management philosopher, researcher, and advocate for values-based corporate cultures. Charles uh, has been providing consulting in the the banking and business field for many years, and he's the author of 20 books. Uh, His latest book, launched in 2015, is called Nine Visions of Capitalism. I recommend you check it out, a great book. And Charles has even dedicated a chapter in the book to the concept of values-based banking, how it emerged, how it's evolved, and some of the banks leading change in the financial, economic, and impact sectors. On the show with us now, I'm delighted to say we have Damien Walsh. Um, Damien became Managing Director of Bank Australia on September 1st in 2011, after serving as General Manager of Corporate Services for eight years. And he was also Company Secretary with Bank Australia. Damien has over 25 years' experience in the mutual banking sector. He's been instrumental in shaping the bank's response to sustainable development. And a highlight was his presentation at the 2005 United Nations Environment Programme Financial Inquiry, a global roundtable at the UN in New York. Damien is a fellow of CPA Australia and a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He also holds a Bachelor of Business and a Master's in Business Administration. Damien, welcome to the show.
6: Thank you, Linda. It's great to be here.
2: Um, Damien, I'm really interested in finding out more about Bank Australia, and I hear it's a 100% customer-owned bank. What does that look like and, and feel like on a daily basis?
6: Well, uh, it's really interesting because uh, being customer-owned or a cooperative uh, financial institution means that um, your customers (laughs) are truly centric to the business uh, model. Um, uh, They're they're the customers and the owners, so there's no conflict between serving the customers and rewarding the shareholders at the same time. So uh, it's a, a fantastic business model
2: and how How big is Bank Australia, and what's your reach in ter- in terms of geography across uh, australia
6: okay so we're you know it 's a big name Bank Australia, but it 's uh, a relatively small bank um, we 've been around for nearly sixty years uh, we're four billion dollars in assets that's Australian dollars, uh, and we have one hundred and twenty six thousand customers, um, so relatively small. Uh, predominantly most of our business is in the state of Victoria, um, which is down the southeast corner of Australia. Um, but we have business right along the east coast. So we're a national bank. Uh, we have uh, branches in most of the capital cities uh, across the country uh, and about to open a new branch in um, Sydney. Um, so uh, we're growing uh, and we're competing um, Uh, and uh, really raising the awareness of uh, values-based banking in the Australian context.
2: And it's it's interesting that you mentioned values-based banking in in the Australian context because I'd imagine maybe Bank Australia is probably a different kind of bank in in that region. Can you talk to me a bit about that?
6: Yeah, uh, so we started life as a credit union um, and... Uh, we've had about 60 mergers over the years, and uh, in 2011, uh, we swapped out our credit union license for a bank license, but we remained a cooperatively owned uh, institution. So, we've always had, I think, a very um, values-driven um, business, um, but what we did is we took those historic cooperative values and we reinvented them uh, in a modern context, so... Uh, Back about 2003, we started developing our positioning around sustainable development and how we could differentiate ourselves in the market uh, as a uh, a responsible bank. Uh, And today, um, uh, we're totally focused on operating in the real economy. Uh, We're totally focused on being a customer-owned responsible bank, and creating uh, mutual prosperity um, for our customer owners and for the communities and the environment. So, uh, you know, we're we're continuing to differentiate ourselves in the market around that positioning and are very, very clear around our target market, which is socially aware people. So we believe that there's a segment of the Australian consumer... um, don't forget we're a small bank, but there's a segment of Australian consumer, uh, that we believe, um, wants to do their banking with a bank whose values are aligned to theirs. And we see that 3.3 million people, uh, and about 360 uh, billion in assets. So if we can grow from a three, sorry, nearly a four billion dollar bank to 360 billion and take that market share in the Australian um, context, then uh, we think that we can really raise the profile of uh, values-based banking in the country.
2: And Damien, are you seeing a growing appetite for, for this kind of alignment where customers are looking for something more than just a, a good, you know, return? They're looking to make, um, I guess, good impact while making that good return.
6: We yeah, are. It's it is, It's interesting. So I don't think we um, have necessarily the strong social movement that you see uh, in Europe. And, you know, part of that's been driven by... Um, people aware of the environment, but part of that's also been driven by the challenges that that came out of the financial crisis. Um, That sort of environment doesn't necessarily exist here in Australia and that we didn't really experience the depths of the financial crisis that were experienced in the Northern Hemisphere. But there's certainly... Um, people in this country who, who want to do the right thing, who want to ensure that their lifestyle um, isn't damaging the planet, who are responsible about where they're um, buying their goods and services and thinking about uh, how they can actually provide or have positive impact in the communities where they live.
2: Um, in, in terms of concrete products and services that create impact, can you talk to me about or those or, or give me some concrete examples?
6: Great. So uh, one which uh, I love talking about is our conservation reserve. Uh, We think this is a world first for a bank. Um, We have acquired uh, land um, uh, very close to a desert, so it's very marginal land, uh, where we've actually worked with the local communities to um, um, re-vegetate with indigenous um, flora um, and uh, rebuild um, uh, conservation areas. So that we can use that space to um, provide biodiversity offsets for new housing builds that we finance. Um, We can also provide carbon offsets for um, car loans that we finance. And we also use that um, conservation work to provide carbon offset for um, the, our actual banking services and running our business. Uh, so that's a fantastic way to help our customers live a, a more sustainable lifestyle.
2: And I, I know too, and I've heard you have um, an impact fund. Is that different to the conservation reserve that you've just spoken about?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So we commit um, up to 4%. We're actually now committing exactly 4% of our profit each year to an impact fund. And, um, we look at that fund, uh, in two different ways. So one is small, um, investments where we can help, um, small local community groups to provide services, uh, in areas of sustainability, education, uh, environment, um, might be mental health or, uh, women's issues, indigenous issues um and uh they they tend to be small uh investments but we also look at longer term investments um over Perhaps a three-year period, um, five-year period where we make larger uh, investments and work with partners to have greater impact over the long term. Uh, And there's some um, fantastic opportunities for us to really evidence uh, a values-based approach to banking.
2: And you mentioned as well that um, you're, you're committed to and you strategically serve the real economy. Can you describe what that's like in in, in Australian terms? Like, w- what is the real economy and what does the real economy look like in Australia?
6: Yeah, sure. So uh, for us um, and our bank, the real economy is um, serving people, uh, communities and small business. So we actually don't run some of those things that you see in the banking world where they're running trading desks, you know, derivatives, um, CDOs, uh, where they're actually just trading money to generate a profit, uh, we don't do any of those activities. We absolutely um, seek to serve people uh, and seek to deliver real outcomes to real people and local communities and help to develop... Uh, small business uh, enterprises uh, that can also help to strengthen the resilience uh, of um, communities and economies, particularly in regional Australia.
2: So it's, it's definitely less about, uh, I guess, creating products or instruments or services based on speculation and more about looking into the communities that you're based in and, and determining, look, what are the needs here and, and how how can we be in service of those needs?
6: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I think for us that's really key to our business and, uh, it, you know, it's really important to how, uh, you know, we uh, differentiate ourselves. So, for example, we don't invest in fossil fuels uh, at all, um, but we do invest in conservation uh, and, uh, and that's a commitment that we've made and we publicly state that and uh, communicate that to our customers.
2: And I'm interested to to find out, I mean, in, in your professional banking circles, you know, when you, well, I guess the first question is, do you hook up in professional banking circles? And when you do, when you describe what Bank Australia is doing, do you get strange looks across the table?
6: Okay. Yes, I do move in banking circles. <laughs> um, yes, I do get strange looks across the table. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I like to talk about it. I think it 's really important it's part of my role as a leader and the, the CEO and managing director of Bank Australia is to actually articulate you know a different kind of banking and so um, some of the things that that really help strengthen the model is not just that focus on the customer but also having a longer term view so um, one of the things that's great about the business is that you know we're not absolutely maximising that profit-driving activity. We're not actually having to hit those quarterly or half-yearly um, results and drive ever-increasing dividends for external investors. Um, as a customer-owned bank, we reinvest those profits back into the business for better products and services and better pricing for our customers. So... Um, when I explain that business model and that longer-term view and the focus on helping grow our organization profitably but sustainably, I do get um, uh, some interesting looks across the table, <laughs> some furrowed brows. People really are really quite challenged by the business model uh, when I talk about it. But uh, I think those that get it, when they get it, they love it. They really understand it.
2: I, I can imagine. So so we're actually coming close to the end, but very quickly in the next minute, what are the challenges you face, like Bank Australia faces in, in, in the next 12 months in, in, I guess, trying to grow this, um, grow awareness of values-based banking and its potential?
6: Yeah, true, Linda. Look, our challenge, and this is the challenge for all mutual um, financial institutions in Australia, be they building societies or credit unions or customer-owned banks like ourselves, is that we're subscale um, And scale is really important in the banking market. So we're less than 1% of the Australian um, banking industry, um, which is dominated by four major banks who have 80 and to 90% market share. So... If we want to uh, increase our profile, uh, increase our reach in the community, have greater impact, um, deliver greater benefit to our customers and help the Australian economy transition towards sustainable development, then we need to be larger and we need to be able to reach out to more people. So for us, it's really important that we continue to not only articulate a values-based approach to banking, but that we actually scale the business up.
2: Great point. Uh, Damien, it's wonderful having you on the show. If people want to find out more, uh, can you provide a a web address where they can check you out?
6: Sure. It's www.bankost.com.au.
2: Fantastic. Damien, thanks very much for joining us. Folks, let's take a quick look at what's trending on social media under the show hashtag Banking on Values. I've noticed some great stories um, about women's financial inclusion, Just Money, which is MIT's massive open online course on this very same topic, and the regenerative economy. And also, shout out to Cultura Bank in Norway and Charity Bank in the UK who are talking and sharing the show. Next week, we'll hear from investment moguls Laurie Spengler from Include Holdings and Jim Prouty from Sapphire Fund who are working to bridge the gap between ethical investment, growth capital and an equitable global economy. Until next time, don't forget to tweet me at Catalyst Warrior and you can tweet the show at Voice AM Business. And don't forget to share the show and spread the word because we have the power to build banking on values.
1: Thank you for listening to Building Banking on Values. Please join your host, Linda Ryan, again next Thursday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope to see you here next week.